morning is from Acts chapter 10. If you want to go to Acts chapter 10. So the great story of Peter being called to the Roman centurion Cornelius. And we're going to pick up kind of at the end of the story uh, in verse 23 here, in verse 23, where Peter now is kind of, he's having a revelation. Well, the Lord has given him a revelation, and now he's explaining this to Cornelius and the others. So picking up in verse 23, Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him, fell at his feet in reverence, but Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I'm only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, three days ago I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He's a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately and it was good of you to come. Now we're all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. And Peter began to speak, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. We're going to end the text there this morning. How true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. I want to contend this morning, I want to contend this morning, that if we would suspend our judgment, suspend our judgment of other people, withhold our judgment, listen to them, get to know them, that we have the best chance, if we suspend our judgment of the others, we have the greatest chance, the greatest opportunity to give them dignity as fellow human beings and, more importantly, more importantly, to, to help them see where God is already at work in their lives to help them see that God is already at work in their lives. When you consider people that you know, sometimes we, we run this danger of having, a, what I'm going to get to later, of, of having a single story of people. A single story. So this song that we listened to this morning, the, the, the phrase that stands out to me is, we reject the either or. They can't define us anymore because if it's us or them, it's us for them. If it's us or them, if it's in or out, if we have to make it this, then, then Jesus, I believe, calls us to go to whoever them is. Are you tracking? So for the first time I heard that song, those lyrics, lyrics gripped me because I think we live in a world, we live in a culture that loves to create us or thems, ins or outs, winners and losers, either ors. Are you with me? Are you against me? Where do you stand on this issue so that I can start to define you? And you can start to define me and we can know where we stand before we ever even have a conversation. I mean, we are in an election cycle, people. You know this is going on. 
We're so quick to label, to judge, to define the other. We see someone wearing a particular brand, driving a certain car, voting for a particular party, supporting a certain cause, a movement, and we decide, oh, I know that person. Oh, I know them. I could spot a liberal from a mile away. We know this. We make these decisions. Oh, I could spot a racist from a mile away. Oh, you're Catholic? Ooh, I know what your faith is all about. And we make these judgments. You're Lutheran? Ooh, I know about you. You're Baptist? Ooh, I know about you. Thankfully, nobody knows anything about the covenant, so they don't judge us. <laughs> but we're free from all those stigmas, right? We're free from it. Or so we think. So we think. But we do this all the time. Oh, you're a Muslim. I know you. You're an atheist. Ooh, I know you. You believe in this and obviously blah, blah. I wish this was but a caricature, but I've caught myself in this mode of thinking. I've witnessed this enough in my own mind to know that it infects us all. Just a brief look at my Facebook feed will show the us versus them, the in versus out mentality. See, I grew up in conservative Nebraska. So I've got friends from Nebraska, and they have all kinds of opinions they like to share. And then I went to school in rural Missouri, and my rural farm boy friends love to share the opinions they have. And then I had the joy of living in one of the most diverse zip codes in the country in Chicago. And if you know anything about Chicago, people love to share their opinions on Facebook about what they believe. And then I lived in very liberal Washington Blue states of blue states, where I remember profoundly being in the church, and we were like, there is no way this gay marriage thing is going to pass. There is no way that uh, marijuana is going to be legalized. These are crazy. And then like 80% of the, of the state voted for these things. It was like, whoa, where do I live? Where am I at? And you'd see on the Facebook feed, and you see in conversations, oh, this is what I'm part of. And so if you saw my Facebook feed, you would see, whoa, Chad, how do you deal with all these things? Because everybody on there wants it to be us or them, in or out. Oh, you're for that thing? I know who you are then. Oh, you're against that thing? I know who you are then. And so my Facebook feed, you could just imagine what it's full of when I've described those places I've grown up. When you think of Colin Kaepernick protesting the national anthem, Black Lives Matter, Blue Lives Matter, Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, no, the LGBT community, let's just talk about some non-controversial things for a minute. <laughs> I mean, I've had friends and family members who have come out as gay, lesbian, transgender, actually a former student who's now transgender, that I've seen the vitriol, I've seen the encouragement, I've seen people taking up sides to say, no, that's not right, or yeah, go get them do your thing. This is the world we live in where we just love. We love to take up sides. We love to know us or them in or out. And the question I have as I, as I, as I looked at the, my Facebook feed and wrestle through all of this is, is how do I hold all this together as a follower of Jesus Christ? These stories that are beautiful, tragic, flawed, Broken people seeking healing, redemption, affirmation. What do we do with all of this? And so the only way I have been able to reconcile all of this in my own soul is to get to a point where I have chosen to reject that either or, in or out mentality and choose to sincerely listen. Listen. Where are you coming from on this? Because I, I haven't had your experience to my African-American friends I've never served as a law enforcement officer. Tell, help me understand 
what it's like before I jump to this conclusion, jump to that conclusion, point the finger, and just say it's all blech. We have to listen to each other as human beings, as human beings. See, the problem is that, that we have this thing called a single story that we believe about people. As, I, as I've been kind of caricaturing, a single story, and I'm going to show you a brief uh, video clip here in a second, um, but, but the single story mentality basically says, oh, you're that, then I know you already. And I don't have to get to know you because I already know everything you're about because you're black, because you're Latina, because you're gay, because you're straight, because you're Christian, because you're Jewish. I already know you. So I don't really need to get to know you. See what I'm saying? You tracking with me a little bit? This is real non-controversial, I understand. But you're tracking with me, okay. I wanna show you this TED Talk. This is a really inspiring TED Talk. I boil it down to just a five-minute clip. It's very powerful. Uh, I believe the woman's name, I, I'm probably gonna butcher it because she's uh, from Africa. I think it's Chimamanda Andichi. Uh, but it's a powerful TED Talk, about five minutes long. And here we go. We all sat back there for sound? All right. Um, Here you go. I would like to tell you a few questions on stories about what I like to call the danger of the single story. I grew up on a university campus in Eastern Nigeria. My mother says that I started reading at the age of two, although I think four is probably close to the truth. So I was an early reader and what I read were British and American children's books. I was also an early writer. And when I began to write at about the age of seven, stories in pencil with crayon illustrations that my poor mother was obligated to read, I wrote exactly the kinds of stories I was reading. All my characters were white and blue-eyed. They played in the snow, they ate apples, <coughs> And they talked a lot about the weather, how lovely it was that the sun had come out. <laughs> now, this, despite the fact that I live in Nigeria, I had never been outside Nigeria. We didn't have snow, we ate mangoes, and we never talked about the weather because there was no need to. Now, I loved those American and British books I read. They stirred my imagination, they opened up new worlds for me. But the unintended consequence was that I did not know that people like me could exist in literature. So what the discovery of African writers did for me was this. It saved me from having a single story of what books are. I come from a conventional middle-class Nigerian family. My father was a professor. My mother was an administrator. And so we had, as was the norm, living domestic help who would often come from nearby rural villages. So the year I turned eight, we got a new houseboy. His name was Fide. The only thing my mother told us about him was that his family was very poor. My mother sent yams and rice and our old clothes to his family. And when I didn't finish my dinner, my mother would say, finish your food. Don't you know people like Fide's family have nothing? So I felt enormous pity for Fide's family. Then one Saturday, we went to his village to visit. And his mother showed us a beautifully patterned basket made of dyed raffia that his brother had made. 
I was startled. It had not occurred to me that anybody in his family could actually make something. All I had heard about them was how poor they were, so that it had become impossible for me to see them as anything else but poor. Their poverty was my single story of them. Years later, I thought about this when I left Nigeria to go to university in the United States. I was 19. My American roommate was shocked by me. She asked where I had learned to speak English so well and was confused when I said that Nigeria happened to have English as its official language. She asked if she could listen to what she called my tribal music and was consequently very disappointed when I produced my tape of Mariah Carey. <laughs> she assumed that I did not know how to use a stove. What struck me was this, she had felt sorry for me even before she saw me. Her default position toward me as an African was a kind of patronizing, well-meaning pity. My roommate had a single story of Africa, a single story of catastrophe. In this single story, there was no possibility of Africans being similar to her in any way, no possibility of feelings more complex than pity, no possibility of a connection as human beings. <clears throat> I must say that before I went to the US, I didn't consciously identify as Africa. But in the US, whenever Africa came up, people turned to me, never mind that I knew nothing about places like Namibia. <laughs> so that is how to create a single story, show a people as one thing, as only one thing, over and over again, and that is what they become. The single story creates stereotypes. And the problem with stereotypes is not that they are untrue, but that they are incomplete. They make one story become the only story. Of course, Africa is a continent full of catastrophes. There are immense ones, such as the horrific rapes in Congo, and depressing ones, such as the fact that 5,000 people apply for one job vacancy in Nigeria. But there are other stories that are not about catastrophe. And it's very important, it is just as important to talk about them. I've always felt that it is impossible to engage properly with a place or a person without engaging with all of the stories of that place and that person. The consequence of the single story is this, it robs people of dignity. It makes our recognition of our equal humanity difficult. It emphasizes how we are different rather than how we are similar. Stories matter. Many stories matter. Stories have been used to dispossess and to malign, but stories can also be used to empower and to humanize. Stories can break the dignity of the people, but stories can also repair that broken dignity. The consequence of the single story is that it robs people of their dignity. It emphasizes how we are different rather than how we are similar. I think in the, if we want to follow Jesus, we have to be about giving people that dignity back. That's what Jesus does time and time again throughout scripture. He, he comes across people who are being robbed of their dignity that the Pharisees are saying, we know this person, we know what they've done, we know what the law says, let justice be served, and Jesus says, let's restore this person to dignity. I, I don't condemn you. I know your story, but I know that there's redemption that's possible, and he listens. 
In Acts chapter 10, Peter has this unique opportunity to reject the single story of a Roman centurion. A Roman centurion. Can you imagine the situation here? It's so hard for us to imagine this today, but this Roman centurion represents everything there is possible about being oppressed about being persecuted. He represents all of these things that are, that are just the us and them mentality to, to a T. You can't get a better representation of somebody who would absolutely be them, the enemies. You know, these, these things of Jesus saying, hey, if a soldier tells you, asks you to carry, carry his stuff for one mile, go two. These are the things that these people could do. They could come, these Roman centurions, and say, I'm just going to make you do this. You don't have a choice. These were the enemies. And God has this crazy cosmic joke almost on Peter. Hey, Peter, go talk to that guy. Can you imagine Peter going, no, I know the kind of person this is. I know that he's out. I'm in. He's out Uh uh-uh, this is not the way this is going to work. I'm okay with this uh, Jesus thing that you're, you're including us and you're working with the Jews, but this whole leap to the Gentiles is a little crazy. It's a little crazy. And you know, if you caught it, how Peter begins the conversation, uh, you're well aware, Mr. Cornelius, Mr. Roman Centurion, it's against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. It's almost like a disclaimer, like, um, I just need to put this out there real quick. I'm not supposed to be here. You're a bad dude. You're out. I don't really know what I'm doing here other than that God sent me. So just to be clear, we need to know where we stand because I have a single story of you and I want you to be over there apart from me. So, so you get it that it's a huge hurdle for me to be here. You are out. You're not part of the chosen people, but God is doing something that Peter needs to pay attention to. Because if Peter was operating in the either-or, in-or-out mentality, he might never have gone in the first place, but he's willing to take this next step of, let me hear what's going on. And as he hears the confession of Cornelius, as Cornelius tells his story, Peter has this revelation. And in the revelation, what does he say? I realize how true it is. I realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. It's interesting, this phrase, because you could kind of throw this away and say, this is just a one-time shot. But this God does not show favoritism phrase shows up at least six other times in the New Testament. So it seems to me that it's somewhat important. And the contexts vary, but there's this uh, overarching theme that God doesn't see a single story in anyone, in any tribe, in any nation, in any people group. At one point, Paul is saying, I don't even see the apostles as being those who, to whom God has shown favoritism. They're equals with me, the apostles. At another point, James is saying, don't you dare treat the rich with favoritism. Don't you dare treat the rich with favoritism, giving them the best seats in the house, telling the poor like, hey, move out of the way. This rich guy came in. Sit in the best seats in the house. Don't you dare. There's all these times, six different times, where where Paul and others are trying to emphasize that God does not show favoritism. God does not show favoritism. And I think it's one of those things for us that most of us say like, okay, I can mostly accept that. I can mostly accept that. But I, there's a few people I'm not so sure about. There's a few people I'm not so sure about. And guess what? Someone might have that thought about you or about me. Not so sure about that one, their place in the kingdom of God. 
So I want to argue this morning as we, as we start to, to kind of move, well, what does this mean for us? What does this look like? As I said at the beginning, that falling into the trap of a single story, falling into this trap of judgment on human beings created in the image of God, it leads us to a place where we discount their being created in the image of God, where we deny them the dignity of having a story, of having value, of having worth, of being worthy of our time, our attention, And where sometimes what we do in these moments is that we actually say, like, I'm not so sure God can work in and through you. And so we have to be careful. In fact, not just be careful, we have to be uh, militant, almost vigilant against having the single story of other people. We have to listen. We have to listen. I think of the story of Job. Job's friends had an idea of a single story about Job. If you remember this story from the Bible, tragic story. He loses everything. And his friends come. And the best thing they do is sit there, lips sealed, quiet for seven days. But then they start talking and they ruin the whole thing with these platitudes and this wisdom and this advice. Well, surely, Joel, or Job, surely, Job, this is what your story is. You must have done something wrong. No, no, I didn't do anything wrong. Oh, you must have. We don't want to hear it. You must have, because this is the only way this will happen, is that you must have done something wrong. They had a single story in mind for Job. I think we do this all the time with people who have fallen on hard times. I've learned over the years of the stigmatism that we have against the homeless. Oh, they fell on hard times? I know the story of that person. It's addiction. It's drugs. I know that story. But I've had this crazy opportunity in my years of youth ministry of introducing kids to the homeless and working alongside the homeless community, and I started realizing time and time again that that person could be me. That person could be my sister, my mother. That person could be my family member. It could be any one of us. And I learned over the years that maybe the most important thing we can do for the homeless community, a simple thing which goes back to the heart of this message, is listen. I just give a little bit of dignity by having eye contact with somebody, saying, I see you. It doesn't mean that you're, you're giving money every time, or you're, but it's, it's just a thing. I remember being on the streets of Chicago. I remember it vividly that you got so used to the, the homeless on Michigan Avenue, and nobody even acknowledged their presence. I mean, we were kind of taught ourselves, don't acknowledge them. They might actually talk to you. Don't acknowledge their presence. You don't want to talk to them. You've got stuff to do. You've got to shop at H&M. Forever 21, you need to get going. And realize the power of even as you walk by, just looking at them and saying, hello. How, how much that warmed their heart as we interacted with the homeless over the years. It just gives a little bit of dignity to somebody that you see them as a human being. I've been reading a book, uh, somebody came me, uh, called Just Mercy, uh, by Brian Stevenson. It's, it's been out for a little while now. And he tells the story. He's working hard uh, on death row to, to work with those who uh, have been wrongfully accused. And he's working hard with them. And on one occasion, he shows up to prison and he notices what he calls in the book a pickup truck that looked like a shrine to the Old South, completely covered with disturbing bumper stickers, Confederate flag decals, other troubling images, mostly about guns and Southern identity. That's a quote. He'd been in this particular prison plenty of times to visit the, uh, his clients, the inmates. But this time, when he got out and he, he was greeted by a new correctional officer, and this person said, here's what you're going to do. You're going to go in the bathroom, you're going to strip down, 
and I'm going to completely strip search you or you're not getting into my prison. He said, gosh, I've never had to do this before. This is crazy. This is not the way this works. And he goes, well, this is the way it's going to work today. And so he went in. Uh, finally, he did all these things. He jumped through all the hoops for this man who, who, who was driving the truck, clearly. He went in and he's meeting with the inmate, this man named Avery Jenkins. And it turns out Avery Jenkins' father had been killed before he was born. His mother died of a drug overdose when he was a year old. He spent his life, listen to this, 19 different foster homes before he was eight. Had severe learning disabilities, mental health issues, you name it. One foster parent actually decided they were done with him, took him out into the woods, tied him up to a tree in hopes that he would never come back. A hunter found him three days later. Later in life, he was just in and out of jail, in and out of psychiatric facilities, and then in one psychotic state, he committed a murder. He was thrown into prison, placed on death row. At one of the hearings, this correctional officer who gave Mr. J- uh, Mr. Stevenson, Brian Stevenson, such a hard time, happened to be in the trial room. He happened to hear the story, hearing about this guy's upbringing with mental illness, hearing about foster care systems in and out. And so on Stevens- Stevenson's next visit to prison, he saw this truck again in the parking lot, and he thought, oh, here we go again. I just want to meet with my client. I just want to go in and do my job. But something had changed. When he went in, he was ready. He started undressing, going into the bathroom, and the correctional officer said, Mr. Stevenson, no, 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 no. You don't have to go in there today. You're okay. I saw you coming. I I signed you in already. I've taken care of everything. He was confused. What's going on here? What changed by this man's behavior? This was really throwing him off. But the man continued, I'd like to tell you something. I took Avery, that's uh, his client, I took him to court for his hearing, and I was listening. Did you catch that? He was listening. You know, I appreciate what you're doing. It was difficult for me to be in the courtroom because I too came up in foster care. Man, I didn't think anybody had it as bad as me. They moved me around like I wasn't wanted nowhere. Listening to what you were saying about Avery made me realize there are other people who had it just as bad as me, I guess even worse. I guess what I'm trying to say is I think it's good what you're doing. There's something else. Listen, I did something I probably wasn't supposed to do, but I want you to know about it. On the trip back after court that day, I took the exit off the interstate and took Avery to Wendy's, and I bought him a chocolate milkshake. <laughs> These are the pow- this is the power of truly listening to each other's stories. See, this is the single story. White correctional officer with Southern fl- or Confederate flags tattooed up. Oh, we know him. We know him. Oh, inmate, black inmate, killed some, oh, we know him. You could even go the single story of the foster care system. I was a foster parent, and sometimes we hear the single story of the foster care system, and I go, that's not me, though. I didn't do those kind of things. We have these single stories. Maybe you even have a single story of of the uh, activist lawyer, the activist lawyer, these single stories, but the power of listening changed everything for this one man, listening and going, gosh, there are more similarities than there are differences between me and that man. So when we listen, we have the ability to affirm the humanity of each and every human being. Brennan Manning, I don't know if you remember Brennan Manning, who wrote uh, Ragamuffin Gospel and several other books, he says this, he says, to affirm a person is to see the good in them that they cannot see in themselves and to repeat it in spite of appearances to the contrary. It's to see the good in them they can't see in themselves. He says elsewhere, 
Uh, Jesus calls us, he, he says, uh, the quote is that Jesus said the world's going to recognize you as his by one sign, the way you are with one another on the street every day. And then he says this, you're going to leave people feeling a little better or a little worse. You're going to affirm them or deprive them, but there will be no neutral exchange. Isn't that the truth? We have these opportunities each and every day with the people we rub shoulders with, with the people even at the checkout line. It doesn't matter. It's people. People created in the image of God, and we believe as followers of Jesus Christ that that we are little Christs walking around with the Spirit of God inside of us, and we have these opportunities to affirm somebody or deprive them, but rarely is there a neutral exchange. Can you imagine this as you walk around in your day, the opportunity you have to affirm other people, whether they see themselves in Christ or not or understand who God is, to see that God is already at work in their lives whether they know it or not. One final story. Uh, I think about a, a, a student that I, that I was working with at my last church. We went to Ecuador, and for some reason, this kid came up, and he had kind of been in and out of youth group over the seven years. It was his senior year of high school, and he came and he said, I want to go to Ecuador. I've got this money set aside. I would really like to travel. I want to go to Ecuador. And I was like, okay, you know this is a mission trip, right? We're not like going to go sightseeing, and, and, this, and it's Ecuador. We're not going to Spain or Italy or something like that. And he's like, yeah, no, I totally want to go. I was like, okay, you got this. We're not going to Jamaica and hanging out at the beach. We're going, to, yes, I got it. I want to go to Ecuador. And so he went, and he happened to be, uh, he and another student ended up being my roommates. And, and it's just crazy to see how God was working in this. Because it's kind of like I started having a single story of this kid. Oh, I know this kid. He came from a rough home life. A brother was in and out of prison. He was kind of in and out. And I thought, you know, he's just kind of here chasing some girls. He just wanted to be along for the ride. Kind of had this single story of him. But as we spent more time together, he started sharing about, you know, when I was a kid, we lived in Alaska, and I used to go to this Bible camp, and there was this really cool pastor there, and I was baptized. Or no, he wasn't baptized. But he had all these crazy experiences of God as a kid, and then felt like, "Ah, I don't know, but the rest of my life is a total mess. I'm not even sure if God exists. So it's not after a while, like, but what are you doing here then? You're not sure God exists. You had these experiences. What are you doing on this trip? He started going, you know, I don't know. It felt like something was telling me to come on this trip. And as I listened, as I withheld, suspended some judgment of who I thought this kid was, I started realizing, you know what? God has been in your life this whole time. He's been with you through all these crazy times. And now here you are at this moment. Can you look back and see? He's like, yeah, I can actually look back and see the way that God was present. So the simple act of listening, suspending judgment, saying like, oh, I know this kid. He's going nowhere. Not that I would say that. I'm not a terrible person. But we all do these things. It's just the honest truth that we go, ah. And we really spend our time in this right now, with him, with her. And in the end, uh, as we came home that summer, he was baptized. That's why I made a point to say he wasn't baptized yet. He was baptized when we got home. He had this chance to share his story with the church. And it was largely because we listened to him. And we said, I think God has been at work all along. We affirmed him. We affirmed who he was, his story, his humanity. In closing, I would say that we have the opportunity each and every day to do just this, to affirm people, to listen to them, to point out where we see God working in their life where they don't even notice it. Whether they are in Christ or not, we have this opportunity to do as Jesus did, to do as, as Peter did, to go to places where we say, like, oh man, but that's the other, that's them, and say, you know, but I think that it's us for them. 
it's not in and out. Let's, let's go to these people and listen and take them seriously, take their stories seriously, that they might find life in Christ. Would you pray with me? God, this is a challenging topic because our, our world is so binary. God, and we confess that sometimes it's just easier to see things as in or out, clear demarcations. It's just easier. But we want to fight against that temptation, Lord, and see people as you see them. We need your eyes. We need your ears, God, because our eyes, our ears, are they're tainted by by other experiences we've had or other things that we take in and consume. And so we need your eyes, your ears, Lord, to see as you see, to hear as you hear. God, help us to listen to the stories of others that we would start to see where you are at work in their lives and celebrate that with them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.